you guys for joining us this evening again another Thursday night Bible study. So we're, we have a couple more in October, right? A couple more? How many more weeks? One more week? One more week. One more week. Yeah, we're going to go like to the week before Thanksgiving, before we break. And um, we're moving on from the textual criticism, which I hope has been a little helpful. Again, all this is just very introductory, just to make give you an awareness, man, because like there's so many different attacks on Scripture that want to throw us off. You know, nothing can do that, but it's also nice if we say, you know, I mean, we have the trump card. It's God's word and we believe, you know, it's it's God. But it's nice to have like an idea of how to respond back to some of these so people will have to wrestle with that, you know? So um, the next section we're going to move into, and I, this one's a little tougher for me, actually, than the textual criticism. It's the canon, and that means it's one end. Um, and the whole idea behind that is, how did we get our books? And again, we're dealing almost exclusively with the New Testament. Um, the New Testament books, uh, we don't want to get into the old. That would just be too long. But um, So as I was saying, Flex, this is like, like an apologetics course. This is what this is because there's so many attacks on the Bible, so many attacks... Uh, out there and they're sophisticated. You know, how do you know what you have is actually the Bible? Um, if you don't have the originals, you don't have copies. How do you know which books are to be included in Scripture? And again, we want to be thoughtful about this because ultimately we want people, we want to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us and take as many roadblocks out of the way as we can so that so that they might be brought to faith. I mean, so we're doing our part that way. We know it's the Holy Spirit that's going to bring them and save them. But we want to be able to say, uh, you know what, there's an answer for that. And I can tell you, we could talk about that. So we're moving into canon tonight. And again, like with when we talked about textual criticism, like how do you know that those are the actual words that were written by those by the apostles? Um, I, I told you I relied very much on Dan Wallace, his work. Well, for canon, I'm relying so much on uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, and he's kind of he is an expert in this area of canon. So everything you hear me say, it's not original with Griffo. It's um, just giving credit where credit is due. It is uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, especially. So um, we are we're just going to introduce it tonight, and and for the for you new guys, I mean. Not new, but you know, <laughs> coming to the class for the first time. We can just see Andy, and he'll give you all the outlines from our previous classes. And they're, they're nice to have. They're nice, um, just, just something to refer to very quickly when we do get these kinds of questions regarding how do we know that we actually are reading what Paul wrote, uh, what, what John wrote, and how do we know which books are to be included in the canon. Um, they're, especially on college campuses with professors, these are sophisticated kind of questions uh, to, to, to discredit Christianity, to get you off your game. Not that that could happen if you're in the Lord, but, you know, kind of rattle you and shake you. So many college kids, they, they go on the first day and they have these professors like Bart Ehrman in North Carolina who will just shatter you. And you're like, you know, I can't believe anything about this Bible with, you know, with, with what he's saying. Um, is, is correct. So uh, that's what this class is. It's just kind of more of an equipping, apologetic kind of class. 
introductory for sure on that level, but tonight we are going to start talking about the canon. And this is just an introduction, so I don't know how long this class is going to go. I always say this is probably not going to be a long class, but we usually end up using our whole hour because I just go on. But actually tonight, I don't know for real. So let me pray and we'll see. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. I just thank you for uh, everybody here this evening as we come together. And I just pray for your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord. Just continue to equip us. And, and we know, we believe by faith. You've given us great evidence to believe on, Lord God. But we know that your word is true. And we live in a world where that, where that is being um, questioned, discarded, even by those who would call themselves Christians. And they say, how can we know? Well, we have what you've given to us, Lord. You've given us sufficient evidence. And I just pray that you would help us, even through a class like this, to sharpen our skills, to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, to pray that you'll use this um, to, to help bring your people to yourself, even as we witness to them. So bless this time to your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, again, everything you're hearing here is a ripoff from Dr. Michael Kruger, and I'm just putting that out front from his book, from his work. He's a, a, um, just an excellent scholar, especially in this area of canon. How do we get these books? How do these books come to be in the New Testament? How do we know? Um, we are going to just, you have your outline before you. Uh, just, just to start off, canon when you think of that, it's not that the canon is spelled differently. There's one N, and it just means, literally means a rule or standard. It's a measure, a set of books, final, fixed for the most part. Uh, we say we have a closed canon. We'll talk about that another time. But the uh, little uh, letter C, the authoritative list, what books are intended by God to function as the only infallible rule of the church. And so that's kind of a, a real brief definition of the Christian canon. These are, these are the books uh, that, that God has intended, that he has brought forth, and that we have um, in, our, in our scriptures, the, the 26 books. So the idea behind it, the challenges, I guess, to, to canon that you'll face out there in this hostile world um, and, and kind of the challenge for us is what is divine revelation and who gets to, to determine it? Like, you know, which books are truly from God or God breathed and who gets to determine that? Like, you know, so how do you, how do you know which books are there? Um, how do we know that the books we have are the correct ones? These are kind of questions that might come. How do you know that those books you have there are, are the right ones? All right. Um, and just going to start off tonight in this introduction uh, with with the three kind of main line of, of uh, objections that you would get. Some people might call them attacks <laughs> on the scripture, um, but but a lot of objections and that 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 we have to think about as Christians and do our due diligence um, as you get into these conversations. So the first one is how do we know that we that the books we have um, are are the I'm sorry the three kind of lines of attacks would be date and authorship. Okay, how do you know when these books were written? How do you know John wrote John? How do you know Matthew wrote Matthew? We'll talk about that. Like the next three weeks, we'll really be getting into how these books are determined, how we know that they're canon, how they know they're from God. And in the course of these three weeks, we'll be hopefully, Lord willing, have sufficient answers to, to these kinds of attacks. Because people are going to say that to you. How do you know? You know, we don't have the original copies. A lot of the originals didn't have the names of the, you know, Matthew was that, 
on there from the beginning. No, even the copies that they find that are attributed to Matthew doesn't have, don't have Matthew's name. So how do you know? These are sophisticated, thoughtful, devious kind of questions uh, that they want to bring at us. So we have to have an answer for that. Um, a lot of claims to forgery. Now these these books are, are forgeries. Um, so we're, we're going to try and deal with that as we go along. Uh, the second big, this is very popular, especially kind of recently, like how about the Bible? So what about all the other apocryphal books? I mean, you guys have heard of the Gospel of Thomas. That's a kind of a real popular book um, that, that's out there. Why isn't that included in, in, the, in the canon? You know? why, why isn't that there? Um, the Gospel of Peter? Many of you heard of that. That's that's out there. The Gospel of Truth, um, Third Corinthians, because we know Paul wrote more letters. There's at least one more letter that he wrote. Where's that letter? Why isn't that in the canon? Why is it First and Second Corinthians? What about the, that other letter? Is it just law? You know, why why isn't that part of it? Or you know, should it be? What if they find that and it's authenticated? What do we do? So that's a that's a big deal. Um, the thing is, these books with these titles, parchments have been found. So it's not like they're just made up. They, they found these with these titles on here. So why aren't these guys included? Why do we have our 27 books and not these other ones? And how could you know? Desi School, that's more of the Old Testament. That's really more of the Old Testament, which actually we'll talk a little bit about because that really helped confirm what was written in the Old Testament. So, because um, they found them. Much earlier copies, so when the New Testament, the, the manuscripts we have for the Old Testament, the Dead Sea Scrolls were like a thousand years before the earliest ones we have, and they're just about exactly the same. So it's like, yes, so it proves that. But that's more of the textual criticism we talked about last time. Um, and the third, I guess, line of attack, it's, and Michael Kruger says, it just says Walter Bauer. I know it says Walter Baver on your thing. Change that. It's, uh, that's my bad. It looks like a V on my notes and my outline, so I do not blame Michelle. I blame me. I didn't put the little U line on the U, so it looks like a V. B-A-U-E-R, Walter Bauer, um, 1877 to 1960. Of course, a German theologian. Ah, those German theologians, man, they just kill us. <laughs> we talked about that last time, but... Um, in 1934, he wrote a book, and it was in German. It's called Orthodoxy and the Heresy in the Earliest in Earliest in the Earliest Christianity, and it just kind of was out there through the years, but it was translated into English, and 19 and later on, and it started to catch on. But 1971, it was printed in English, and it just exploded. So what Walter Bauer said, and this really shook up the the, the whole world of of canon of like what books belong again these are all specialties I've told the other people here before I'm like a general practitioner right I, I know a little bit about a lot of things some things I know more about some things I know less about these areas are expertise these are the specialists so when we talk about textual criticism that's why I'm referring to Dan Wallace and, and others we talk about this I'm referring to Michael Kruger James White because these guys are experts in this field and, and others so uh, what happened with with uh, Walter Bauer's book, as, it, as it's printed into English, it just explodes onto the scene. And so the scholars loved it. They were just, okay, now this makes sense. Now, especially if you were more liberal, 
and really had questions about the Bible to begin with. His main thesis in his book, his main thing, what he was putting out there was, look, here's the deal. There were not just one Christianity. There were his thesis, his theory was, there was a variety of Christianities in the beginning. That's right. There was all kinds of, of different types of teachings. All of them claimed to be the original. All of them claimed to be right. All claimed to be apostolic. So they all had that authority. That's what they were saying. So there were a lot of different groups kind of vying for prominence. And it just so happens what we have in the New Testament today kind of won out. That's the idea. But you had other groups, they said, said like, like the Gnostics and the Montanists and the Docetists and, the, and Marcion and the Donatists. All these different kinds of groups and, and, and ideas that were there. And they were battling out the, theologically. They had their own books, the Gnostic Gospels. They had to, so we could have very easily just ended up with that had another group won out. Not sounded good to a lot of liberal theologians. So, you know, so we're just, what we have today is just, we just won, right? We just won the theological battles by force and, you know, that, so on and so forth. So eventually the one group prevails and that's considered to be true Christianity. And, and he said, you can't know that because if somebody else would have won out, we would have had their books. So we could be reading the Gospel, we could be reading the Gospel of Thomas very easily to them. So, um, we just happen to be the winners. So that is kind of, that really, really caught on. And it's had tremendous, tremendous influence on many scholars, including our good friend Bart Ehrman, if you remember from last time. He, he's called the Walter Bauer 2.0. Um, and he's, again, just amazingly gifted. He was a professing Christian. How many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? Oh boy. It, um, the Gospel According to Jesus. He's presently teaching at North Carolina Chapel Hill, and he was uh, just the foremost New Testament scholar. So he, he has a lot of credibility in that world. And he was a professing Christian. He worked with Bruce Metzger. I think it was Metzger. He was like his protege, prize student, all that kind of thing, up and coming. And um, he ended up. You know, questioning, becoming agnostic. Now he's just kind of out there. He went on the John Stewart show and kind of just bashed the, the New Testament. He's the one that said you can't trust it. So, yeah, uh, that's a name. That's a guy you need to be familiar with, Bart Ehrman, especially with textual criticism, but also with canon. Uh, he's, he's caused. That's why we're doing this tonight because years ago we probably wouldn't even have done this because this was left. This was like the scholarly thing. It was left in you know with with, with the brainiacs right in their room. But because of Ehrman, it's on the streets. And so that's why you have people challenging us in this way. As a matter of fact, our son Will, as a flight attendant, was challenged by another flight attendant on that. I wish she was here tonight. Because how could you know that those books are original? Like she was using these kinds of arguments um, from Bart Ehrman. But anyway, uh, it is a big challenge and, and because it is on the streets. So Bauer was right about the diversity of opinions. There really were. Obviously, there were a lot of challenges to the Christian faith, even in the New Testament. Um, in Colossians, 1 Peter, there's this idea of gnosis, kind of the whole Gnostic idea, so there might have been some early infiltration of this kind of idea in the church. Um, so there definitely was. He's right about that. Um, but he's wrong in believing that only one could have been considered true Christianity, um, or at the very least, 
no one can know with certainty. That's what he would say. You couldn't know for certain that you have the correct version of Christianity and the right books in the New Testament. That's not true. There were a lot of challenges in the early church. So some of those things I mentioned and you have on your outline, we're already at number four. Um, the first is Gnosticism. How many of you have heard that? This is wide, broad, deep, and wide. There's a lot there. But there was a gentleman named Marcion, early 100s to mid-100s, early church. And he had a big impact on the church. In some ways it goes on through the ages, but this whole idea of secret knowledge, like secret wisdom, you know, only this you know, from God is only good from God. But the idea behind it is that God is purely good. God is purely good. He could not have created the world since evil exists in it. And this is kind of the teaching. I know we can answer this, but that's kind of the teaching that was out there. And it was catching on. Um, it was the evil came in through God's what he the children God had created. They brought evil in. Christ is a God who's descended to earth to share His knowledge or His secret knowledge to give wisdom and life. And part of that teaching is that all evil, all matter is evil, only spirit is good. You know, this kind of secret teaching, secret understanding, kind of denying the, 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 the reality, the material, focusing in on the non-material, the spiritual, be, you know, coming up in that way. There are many Gnostic writings, many Gnostic Gospels. So that was a problem. Okay, So that's one area that, that Bao was right. There were these, you know, these ideas that that were coming into the church. Another one was Montanism. How many of you have heard of Mon Montanus? Not Joe Montana. <laughs> Montanus says the guy's name. Um, and it was just, again, early 100s in that area. But this was a movement in the early church that he was kind of considered the first charismatic dude. Like he was after, like, yeah, because for years, you know, the gifts had... Some of the supernatural, the charismatica gifts were less and less. And Montanus is like, you know, that's, no, we have to recover those. We, we have to, he believed the church lost its zeal. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? History <laughs> repeats itself. <laughs> and he sought the gifts, especially of prophecy and healing and tongues. And he had followers, especially two women that really were close to him. And, um, he was discouraging marriage, you know, because Christ is just about to return and we need to have all our focus and energy on, you know, on the gospel, on Christ, on manifesting these gifts so people see this and will be drawn to the Lord. Um, there was a lot of harsh rules, a lot of legalism with him, a lot, you know, regarding his disciples. They, they really had, their like, sole focus was on Christ imminent return. He's coming back soon. Um, and, and so that, that was kind of the idea. That's, the church had to deal with that. So Bauer's saying that's another Christianity. That's one of the Christianities that are vying. If they would have won out, then we would have been Montanists at this time. Another one would be um, Monarchianism. These are just some theological terms. Um, but the idea is now, there's two, two ideas behind it. One is dynamic, and this teaching was there early on. It said, hey, Jesus was just an ordinary man who had been placed, who had been given divine power by God. That's the dunamis. That's why it's called dynamic monarchianism. 
dunamis, given that power at his baptism. Um, and so that kind of that divine power, just a man, but filled with that divine power at his baptism and then again after his resurrection. And again, it was, it was propagated by an early theologian. Uh, the church dealt with him. He was excommunicated in AD 198. Theodosius was his name. And um, yeah, so so you had these, they weren't really competing views. These were heresies coming in, right? But Bauer was saying these were legitimate, you know, if, these, if, if people would have, if this would have caught on, then that's what we would be believing today. The only reason we believe what we believe today is because that's what caught on. Say, no, that's not true. Um, and then there's modalistic monarchianism, and that's the idea. It's still around today. And you can find these teachings in different places today, especially this one. Uh, the, the first one, dynamic, is more like adoptionism, um, kind of like Jesus is the first and highest created being of God. Arianism came along a little bit later at this time, too. But that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. You know, Jesus is the first and highest creation. He's not God, the Son. Uh, modalistic. Claim that the Trinity are three modes or three different aspects of God. There's different kind of versions of it. Uh, T.D. Jakes, does anybody know him? There's a lot of modalists today. A lot of those charismatic dudes are kind of modalistic. And the idea behind that is that um, God manifests himself in different ways at different times. So in the Old Testament, God manifests himself as the Father, Yahweh. New Testament, God manifests himself as Christ. Right now, today, he's manifesting himself as the Holy Spirit. So, so it's um, not one God in three distinct persons, but one God in three distinct different modes. Okay, so it's not the, the personhood of, of the Trinity is God. So this is what the early church had to deal with. Um, and again, the idea was like, look, if one of these would have won, their books would make up the canon. And that's where we get back to the, this whole idea of canon. Um, but the truth is, these were, these were aberrant teachers that came into the church. That's almost every epistle. I think almost every epistle of Paul's letters or even the, all the general epistles, Paul's, um, Peter's, I think there's only one that doesn't mention false teachers. Am I right about that, Andy? Am I right about that? Uh. <laughs> don't, don't worry. Don't check me. <laughs> but you had this right away because, look, watch out for false teachers. We're continually warned. They're going to come in. They enter your love feast. Jude, right? We're always, always being warned about false teachers, being ready, and then dealing with them. What does Paul say in Galatians? Look, if anybody preaches another gospel than what I preach to you, let them be accursed. Don't, don't go there. Don't do that. If they say if there's anything you add to the gospel, take away from the gospel, oh, you could be a Christian, but just be circumcised. That makes you a real Christian. No, that's not the gospel. So any kind of false teaching that's brought in we have to be on guard and say no. So they had what they had at the early church Bible's books as it was coming through at this time. They had the writings, and this is kind of giving it away a little bit how we got the canon. It was that they were already being circulated. They didn't come to them in the 300s, right? They, they were already reading these, and so these letters are being writ, read by the churches, and they're putting these things into practice. So when you see these teachings coming into the church, you start to say, wait a minute, you know, it doesn't line up doesn't square. 
with the gospel, with the teachings. These are aberrant teachings. You have you know, different teachings. Even in the book of Acts, you have that. 1 Timothy 6.20 says that the gnosis, the teachers with false knowledge are going to come in. That's, be ready for that. That's more what's going on. It wasn't like this Christianity, that Christianity, that Christianity. No, there's always been one true Christianity, man. And, and we're fighting off those that would buy to be Christians. Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. And this is just surface skimming. There are you know, questions that could be asked and answered and discussions had on it. But if you're a liberal theologian, that Walter Bauer thing sounds so good. You know, that's why you guys, I don't really have to believe Christianity because it could have been anything. And we're saying, no, it was always this. And, we've, and, and you can see we're, we're called constantly to be aware of, to defend, to stand up for the truth, and to get rid of those false teachers, those wolves that come in sheep's clothing. Right? Okay, so that's, that's the, the idea, uh, some of the challenges we face. And, um, yeah, I could end right here, but I'm not going to because we have special guests. So I'm going to go on a little bit longer. <laughs> These guys drove all the way from Oakland. <laughs> So, you know, this is like the brief introduction to it. But I, I have a few more notes. This will be on your outline next week. But we will get into the idea of how. And I'll just highlight these tonight. And then next week we'll do a deep dive into them. That's what we'll start our deep dive. So you're still stuck with me for a little bit anyway. Any questions or comments on anything so far on this? It's pretty, this is very interesting. And it's it's good to know as Christians. Again, I, my whole purpose in this is just to give you an awareness and a little bit to work with. And there's a lot more that you can do, but you know th- these are things that we're coming up against as Christians. And it helps us to, to be even more sure and then to answer those objections that we have that, that come to us. So the question is, how did we get our canon, the canon of the New Testament, the, the books that we use? Joy, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to ask when the canon... Was determined. Oh, that's a great question. And that's a trick question, too. But you're going to have to stick around for that. Because people will say, when do we get the books in the 300s? Well, that's when the canon came down. Let me, we're going to talk about, real quick right now, there's, there's, that, that's a huge, huge question. And so, how do we, how do we determine the canon and when did we, when did we actually have it? When was it canonized? When did the scripture actually come to us? There's different ideas out there. Um, and the first one is like that the community of believers or the community of those people, they're the ones that determine the canon. Okay, they're the ones who have it, and then when they get all the books together, um, they are they bind them, and then there's a date, you know, 300s, mid 300s, early 400s. That's when we have our canon. Historically determined. That's another way. That's that's another way to determine. It's based on, on the history of it, going back, when did they first come about, how did they decide which ones to have. We'll talk about that as well. The third one, and this is where we are at, and this is the one we're really going to press in on, because it's the truth, <laughs> is a self-authenticating model. So when did we have the canon? People will say, well, it wasn't over the three or four hundred, so how could you guys know? No, we had the canon... It, it was always there when Paul wrote it, when people were reading it. Now, it wasn't, they were 
They, these books were already seen. And you'll see this, hopefully, I'm going to prove this to you, you'll see it. They were already considered to be Scripture. And we'll tell you how and why they were already considered Scripture, but from the earliest time they had it. Now, by the time you know they were put in the book form and you had the parchments and the New Testament, all of it together, it might have been the three or four hundreds, but we always had the canon since it was written and once they were passed around to the churches. That's the short answer. And that's kind of the one, the self-authenticating model because of the qualities, because of what's written, because of the truth that's in there. And again, we always have to remember, what do we always go back to? This is the first thing we talked about. That's why I spent two weeks talking through the uh, Westminster Larger Catechism. We talked about scripture itself, that it ultimately is God. It's supernatural. We see that scripture is from God because of the majesty, the whole, the consent of all the parts, the truthfulness, the majesty of it, the beauty, everything, all the attributes we talked about. And, and so, yes, ultimately it's, it's God's providence, how lives are, people are convinced, lives are changed, understanding. But even at the end of that question, it says, but only by the Holy Spirit will you know that this is the word of God. Because once we're Christians, we have that enlightenment and understanding. Oh, this is the word of God. So we have good evidence. This is what I love. But we always have to walk by faith at the same time. So it's not blind faith. It's not like, oh, we just believe because we believe. And I don't want to ever hear you guys say that. We believe. Here's why. You might, that might not be sufficient for you, but here's why. And here's the truth. This is why we believe in miracles. This is why we believe in scripture. This is how we got it. People might not be satisfied, but it is, it is a legitimate, good answer that has evidence behind it. Right? So whether people accept that or not is up to the Lord to open their hearts. So, yeah. But those are the three categories. Um, now, each one has strengths and weaknesses, but you know the self, self-authenticating is really the, the one that you'll see, hopefully. Um, it doesn't just make the most sense, but it actually is. You can see God's divine providence behind that. This is how we got the books and how they're determined. But some of the community-determined models, we'll talk about that for sure starting next week. I'll, I'll touch on it tonight. But this just means that the canon is authenticated by, and you know which books belong to the canon, when it's received by some sort of group or people in the community. So these are the books that are established by the usage. These are the books that were always used by them. The reception of the community. This will all be on your outline next week. Um, but the idea here, and this is, there's nothing about the particular book that makes it canonical. It's just because this is what these guys used. It was passed down. You know, they, they, they've had these books. But there's no inherent attributes. Um, nothing divine necessarily about it. It's something that a book becomes as it's used. Right? It's just going to come into canon. This is what the liberals say. This is what Ehrman would say and Walter Bauer and others. Um, canonicity is something that's imposed on the books. Okay, we're using it, so it must be the truth. And you know, it's, this is what we what we have. So it's, it comes from um, attributed from outside of itself. There are four examples of these. I'll just mention two real quick here because these are the two big ones. Um, again, it's all be on your outline next week. Um, how canon is determined by community? How the books are authenticated? 
And this first one is the liberal view. So any of the liberal churches, like so if you went to a PCUSA church, United Methodist Church, most most Methodist churches, um, there's always going to be exceptions. Um, what else? What's the other Presbyterian? United Presbyterian Church? Is that, am I thinking about that? Hmm? PCA. No, PCA is good. PCA is reformed. They came out of, for the most part, now they're starting to the leftward drift. Um, American Baptist Church. You know, these are all the, so they're churches and they read the Bible, but this is what they this to them it's not the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It's nothing necessarily special. It's books that help us, right? They've been collected and we can learn good lessons from them. Okay? That's that's the truth. That they'll use the same language, but it's chock full of different meaning, you know, for the most part. Um yeah, it's really sad. Especially when it's women preachers, too. You can always know that they don't know. Anyway, um, this is the Bart Ehrman model. Popular among liberals, progressives, more and more progressive Christians. They believe that the canon is simply a result of human activity. Um, it's not a product. It's a product of man. No divine activity. This is called the naturalization of canon. It's just natural. It just kind of happens. These are books, like I mentioned earlier, that are popular. Uh, powerful people like them. This is recommended. Even political circumstances. That's it's all politics. You know, these are the winners they get. It's kind of arbitrary, but it seems good enough. And so that's you know, these are going to be our books that we're going to follow. We're going to put these books together because they seem to work best for the group. Most people read these. This is where our information comes from. That's what a lot of liberals think about our Bible. This is that's why we use how we got the canon. Community believers. The positives of this does play a role. It really does. And you'll see that even in the self-authenticating model. Um, so that is the positive. They did, so in other words, they won't say that it just dropped down from heaven. Who tells us? Who says that their book just dropped down from heaven, basically? Can you think of any Christian cults or other religions in the world? Mormons. <laughs> right on. You're Mormons. <laughs> Joseph Smith in the woods. You know, he gets this vision of Moroni who comes and tells him what to write and it's blah blah Egyptian. What is it? Reformed Egyptian or something like that. Did you, did they tell you that? Yeah. Yeah, they got the stone yeah, the seer stones and he read off. You you know you're in trouble. When something just falls out of heaven or an angel appears to you and gives you say the same thing about Islam and Muhammad and so on and so forth. So these are kind of books that just drop out of heaven. And uh, No, that's that's why it's positive at least that even the liberals say there's a community of believers, books that became accepted, but nothing really special about them. None. Um, the negatives, of course, um, the insistence that the church... Um, Play no rule in it. Like it's, it's not really. There's nothing really divine about the books. Um, that it's natural. Naturalization of canon. God had no rule at all. Strictly a human endeavor for the most part. And then you know you want to ask the liberals. Well, how do you know that? How do you know it's just a strictly human endeavor? And kind of make them answer that question. They simply assume based on their worldview. There's no supernatural. God's what's divine providence? You know how's he going to lead, direct, guide? That's nothing to them. You know that's. That's mumbo jumbo. That's supernatural. We're naturalists. It has to come natural. So that's kind of a natural way. Like you know, you see it with. Um, we'll talk about a couple of different examples of how a community has books and they kind of follow those rules. They're man-made. Again, I think the Mormons are a good example of that. 
Second one, and this is a big one, is the Roman Catholic Church. Um, this is another uh, the, the historical model. This is number two. There's two more after this. Community-determined canon. And I really want to take time on this. I'm just going to skim it tonight. Every, what I'm saying tonight, I'll be reiterating next week, a little more depth, but a lot more depth when we talk about the Roman Catholic canon because this is a big deal too because um, this gets into the authority of the church. Is it is it the church or the Bible that determines the church, what the church believes, or is it the church that determines the Bible? That's really, yeah, for sure. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They believe the ultimate authority does not lie in Scripture alone. Now be careful because they believe in the authority of Scripture. I don't want to disparage. I'm not trying to disparage anybody. I just want to tell you what others believe. Uh, but they do reject what's called sola scriptura. That's a huge, 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 huge deal. Because sola scriptura means that the Bible is the highest and ultimate and only infallible authority. doesn't mean we don't have other authorities. We have the confession of faith. We have the catechism. They're authorities. But they are all subordinate to scripture. And they're subject to change. And, and they, you know, we do, it's, it's fallible. Scripture is the only infallible rule of faith. That's why we say sola scriptura. It's not solo scriptura. Some people say, oh, just the Bible, nothing else. I don't want a creed. I don't want anything like that. Just get those things away from me. I got the Bible, man. Oh, sorry, I do like the Southern Baptist thing. Because uh, <laughs> that's mostly what it is, you know. But there, there's, there's places, a lot of places for subordinate standards, so long as they don't come up to the level of scripture or supersede scripture. So, for the church, just real quick, this will all be on your notes next week. <laughs> Threefold authority structure. The first is scripture. They'll say that. That's an authority, obviously. Church tradition, which is on the same level as scripture, and it really supersedes scripture. Why do I say that? Can you give me a couple of examples why I would say, or what would you say perhaps, that for Roman Catholics, that the church tradition, which is the oral tradition, which is passed on, passed down from the apostles all the way down infallibly in that way preserved by God supernaturally to these men so that is truth but um, are there are a couple of instances that you could think in scripture you could think about Mary you could think about some things where here's what the scripture says but here's what Rome tradition teaches and then that tradition kind of usurps what scripture teaches so can you give me some examples a little well, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man that's Christ Jesus so why would you pray to Mary Perfect. You know, Roman Catholics would have an answer to that, and, but but it also varies, Flex, because some will say, "Well, we don't, you know, really, we know Christ is the chief mediator, but we pray to her because she intercedes for us and intercedes to her Son, whom He loves." Now, there are other Roman Catholics who believe Mary is a co-redemptrix, like you basically have to believe in Mary like you believe in Jesus. So they're not there's not consensus there either. But you're right; that's exactly right. Anything else that you guys can think of? Purgatory is huge. That is a, a you know, I might use a passage from Corinthians about being burned and refined and that, but that has nothing to do with their doctrine of purgatory. It just doesn't. That really developed from tradition. That's but that's scary too. Scary. It's very scary because it that that is a a doctrine of I won't say demons. It is, and it, and it just enslaves and frightens people because that that and it's false. It's on so many levels, and it's so corrupt. And it, that was one of the elements that, that were 
heart of the Reformation. It's kind of the, kind of a match of that. You know that that in, inflamed Luther when he saw um, what's his face. Italian. No, it wasn't Italian. <laughs> it was a good the dude going around selling the indulgences. Help me. And he was seeing his little have his little phrase when a coin in the clangs. A soul from Purgatory Springs. Yes, rings. A soul from Purgatory Springs. It wasn't Tertullian. What's his name? I'm still gonna try. Tetzel. John Tetzel. <laughs> Tertullian Tetzel. What's the difference? Tetzel. So do the Yes. So he went around, and you're right. So what that's saying is, look, whatever sins you've committed that haven't been, um, you need objective righteousness. Okay, so, so you're infused at baptism, but every time you sin, you lose. So that's why you go to the sacraments. That's why they, they kind of, you can almost think of it, and this is kind of crude, like a gas tank almost. Like you're filled at your baptism with the righteousness of the Lord. But as you sin, saving right, that it, it dissipates. And so the, the bottom line is, wherever your tank is, um, when you die, you end up in purgatory until that tank is filled up so you can actually get into heaven. Because you need to be objectively righteous. Objective, with no sin. And so, when you're in purgatory, people are praying for you. They they do a mass for you. So they'll pay hundreds of dollars to the church. The indulgences. So you get a little more in your tank, a little more in your tank, until finally, whatever, wherever you were, it, you can actually go into heaven. That is so sinful and so wrong. And I, it's... It's a it's a it's a hard hard job. On the one hand, it says, "Oh, it gives them hope if they didn't die in mortal sin, one day they'll get into heaven." That's kind of in their minds, you know. They they were baptized in the Catholic Church, and so they still have that. They were buried in the Catholic Church. They were received the last rites. All those things fill up the tank, you know. Um, but then when you're dead, it's the treasury of merit. Do you know what the treasury of merit is? Just from the super saints and Jesus' work, they were so great that they had more merit. So there's a whole treasury of merit that they could borrow from. It's like a it's like a treasure chest. You open that up, and since Mary was such a wonderful saint, she did more than she needed to get into heaven, so we're going to take some of hers and give it to you. That's the treasury of merit. A little more sophisticated in their theology, but this is the real basic ideas. So yes, but that's tradition. That's, a, that's passed on from the church. They might have a scripture to try to... But this is a whole... It's a doctrine that is just uh, propagated by them. How about Mary, uh, the, the perpetual virginity of Mary? So Roman Catholics said Mary remained a virgin. Why? And, and again, the intention is how could that womb that bore the Savior have another, you know, another baby there? It's, that's, that's, you can't think that. It's incomprehensible because of the holiness, because of Christ. So there's a reverence kind of behind it, twisted, but you know, reverence nonetheless. But what's the scripture actually teach about Mary's virginity? Shit, for the children. After, after. That's right. But is that holiness towards Mary or towards Jesus? I always thought it was more like they were venerating Mary with that idea. They did. It was because of that womb, that precious womb that carried the Savior. How could another one be? I think it's a mix. I also want to say the Immaculate Reception by Franco Harris in 1972, but uh, 74. 
but the immaculate <laughs> reception, conception. And that's the idea that <laughs> Flex is cracking me up. Then um, <laughs> there's touchdown Jesus at Broder Day. Um, now we're getting crazy here. But um, yeah, so the immaculate conception is the idea that that Mary was born without the taint of original sin. And so that's really about, again, because how could Jesus come from anybody that's stained with sin in that way? Like, there's no way. So she was, she was immaculately conceived without the taint of original sin. The only thing is, after she died, well, if she didn't have sin, the penalty for sin is death. But if she didn't have sin, original sin, how could she die? So years and years and years later, they came up with the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary, that she was assumed. So you'll read church, church is called the, the Assumption, you know, the Assumption of Mary. That's how it works. And so when you're doing that, it's, it's hard to keep up sometimes. That's when you get rid of sola scriptura, and that's when tradition can serve. Remember, they said, "Hey, your your mother, your brothers, your sisters are here. You're crazy, Jesus. Go home with them. who's my mother and my brother, right?" So they said, "Well, that they meant you know like a mother in the faith, because we have like fathers in the faith, mothers in the faith, sisters in the faith." Very clear in the text that we're talking about his mom and his brothers after him, right? So. That's the trouble you get into. Scripture, church, tradition. But then this is the, the, the one we're really going to focus in on is the magisterium. And that is the government of the church, the pope and the bishops. They're the ones. And that's where the power lies. Because they're the ones who have the right to determine what counts as scripture and tradition. So this is what you're going to see next week. Um, it's the only authority, the magisterium is the only authority that can rightly interpret scripture and tradition. That's why for the longest time you were not allowed to read the Bible if you were Roman Catholic. Remember? Do you remember? <laughs> Maybe it was after your time. Were you allowed to have scripture? Uh, there was never a Bible in our house. Did you have like the big family Bible, the big family uh, that you never really read or you tried to read? You got the you know, Genesis 15 and that was it. You're like, I can't do this anymore. Uh, yeah, the Catholic, but you were not encouraged because they're the ones that have to this day. I mean, when there was a book printed, now it's, everything's a mess with the Catholic Church. You know, the, the Pope, it's just, it's falling apart. The Pope is a socialist, Marxist, oh, yeah. communist. But anyway, um, every book had to have the stamp. What was that called? The impraditor? Forget what it was, a stamp of approval from Rome that, okay, if you're a Catholic, you could actually read this book. Otherwise, you weren't to read other, other books. But uh, especially scripture, again, that's, that's changed um, over, over the years. But that's where the authority lies. And that's what people are going to go back to. And it's very powerful. If you're Roman Catholic, you can say, well, I have my authority. You can go back to the, the magisterium, the pope and the bishops. They're the ones. And the, these are the holy men. These are the ones called by God. They have apostolic authority the Pope does you know so that's where they'll come back to all the time Liz Wheeler will come back to that every second of the day if you listen to her um, so again I'm just getting in a little bit of the weeds here but ultimately it's a church that determines the canon so Joyce says who determines the canon for Roman Catholics and that's again where that authority is Roman Catholics look to the church in order to authenticate the canon these are why the books are in the Bible because we say so ultimately 
right? The magisterium decides that. Uh, there are more um, moderate versions among some Catholics, uh, closer to what we believe, but the stricter versions and the overwhelming is that you know it is the church that decides. Again, some of the positives with this, I'm going to be reiterating all this next week, and we'll talk a little bit more. Some of the positives, um, of course, the church does play a role in receiving the books of canon. Um, the Roman Catholic Church, unlike the naturalists, do admit, obviously, that there's divine activity involved in the establishment of the canon that is given from the Lord. Um, but the negatives is, and we'll look at just the biblical evidence is so contrary to this idea of the magisterium determining what church tradition is and what church scripture is and what has precedence and what doesn't have precedence and so on and so forth. Because uh, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and so forth. We'll see that next week. Um, the idea that the church causes the canon, this is the fact that the church already had a canon. So one of the big questions and implications is, okay, so what about the Old Testament? You know, what, that's what Jesus, that's what they had early on, even as they were writing the New Testament. You know, if the church has to authenticate canon, if canon has to come from the church, what about the Old Testament scriptures? Who authenticated those? That's a big quandary for Roman Catholics even today. James White asked that question in a debate, and the dude just was like, mm -hmm. it went silent. It was like dead silent. So anyway, um, that is uh, some of the idea here. Um, there is a way to know uh, scriptures we have. Then there's, there's a couple other historical um, models in that way that we're going to look at and talk about because this is all prevalent. It's all relevant for us because they'll say, oh, you guys have this, you, you have this way, you have that way. How could you know what books you have? Um, but ultimately, we're going to get to the self-authenticating model. It just makes the most, it's just biblical sense and there's really good reasons for it. But those are going to be in the classes that, that um, you know, preceding classes. I hope to spend two or three weeks, probably three, on on this section of it. And then we'll probably look at like the Gospel of Thomas because that that's a really had been a really popular one. So why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't Thomas be included in the canon? And then maybe if we have time after that, we'll talk about translations. What's the difference? What are good translations? What should I use? What shouldn't I use? How does that all come about? You know, what's different about the KJV versus NASB or ESV and NIV 95 to NIV today version? What about the NLT? All those kinds of things. Can I read these Bibles? Are they helpful? New Living Translation. You know, let's paraphrase. So maybe we'll talk about that for a class at the end and have a party or something. But uh, have some popcorn with that. But anyway, that's our introduction for tonight. Next week, again dig a little deeper to what we said, plus we'll consider a couple other of the historical models and then we'll go from there. Any questions or comments? Andy. Didn't we get manna from heaven? What the, the, most of the Egyptians, out of the, the people out of Egypt. Yeah. Wasn't there manna from heaven? So, yeah, you know, Mormons said they were, they got a Bible from <laughs> the, the sky. We got, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about authoritative scripture that's got manna falls under the auspices of miracles. You know, Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, water from the rock, all those things that falls under the category of God's miraculous sustaining power 
which is actually part of scripture, like it's in scripturated. You know, that's, those are the things that authenticate the reality of God. So, so the, the miracles, especially all of them, but especially in the New Testament, they weren't just pragmatic. They weren't just to heal. They weren't just to feed. They weren't just to raise the dead. People got went hungry again. People got sick again. People died again. The, the main ideas, especially according to the Gospel of John, but all through the, the Gospel and through the through the New Testament, is what? They were signs. They were they were showing that he truly is God. He's backing up everything he said. That's what he said. Hey, what's easier to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to pick up your pallet and walk? Well, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Oh, okay, yeah, whatever. But when you pick up that pallet and you walk home, that shows my authority and the power and it and it authenticates. So that's what the miracles are for. So that's what the man would be for. God's provision, but his power, his care for them. Um, There were no eyewitnesses at all to the right. So when the New Testament was being written, they were writing the letters, they were passing them around to the churches, and then you know, that's how they received them. And they built you know, the books. The books came from that. They have marks of authentication of divinity and so on and so forth. And we'll talk about that. But with Joseph Smith, he got a vision. He was visited by an angel named Maroni. Angel Maroni, and then he, he you know gave him these you know these words to write, and, and then he did. Um, he was he was a seer. He was a, he was a fraud. He was a con man. He would tell people stories like he would say, "Here's where water is" and stuff like that. I'm trying to remember. This is so long ago. It's like this is like seven, ten years ago now since I thought about Didn't it. His friend questioned him and then hit them the first translation and had to translate them again. They were totally different. Well, yeah, I don't. The dude was in the other room and he was looking in and he was, you know, giving him the letter or the words. And so his friend was writing them down or something like that in the other room. But the friend never saw anything. Nothing was authenticated. And, you know, I mean, if you, I feel badly because the Mormons are really, see how you can get really caught into that if you don't have, like, the ultimate authority from God's word. Because people can be deceived for years and years and years. But if you look, you know, it just comes down to a man, basically. And then you, know, you can see the history of this guy, what he, what he was, a fraud. He was in prison. He was arrested. He was killed. Everywhere he went, they caused trouble. You know, and the Mormons were, were tough. That's how they ended up in Utah where nobody was for a long time. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a sordid story. When I do my church history class again, which I hope to start in the, in the springtime, you have to come for church history. You'll like that. I think I'm going to do that. Um, I've had requests to do that again because it just it lays a beautiful foundation. So we'll start with the early church, but we'll go through... And it just gives you a lot of handles on you know through time and through church history, and um, to 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 learn. And, and when we get into the, the cults, obviously we'll talk more about it. But anyway, yeah. So, anything else? I was just gonna add one thing. Um, I never really heard or thought about the self-authenticating of the scripture, but when you brought that up, I just felt like without even knowing, it just makes sense biblically. But in, in First John, is it First John? He says, uh, "In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and 
God was the Word. And I don't know. To me, that's just like beautiful. But when you said about self-authenticating, like it was, the Word was already always there it's because it is inerrant and inspired. You know, that's, and divinely brought to us. We recognize it, but. Remember, the Lord's always superintending over it, just like he was over the writers. You know, he's superintending over They were writing in their own style. They were writing what they you know, were writing. They weren't mechanical. They weren't just do, 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 you know, mechanical writing. But they were actually writing. We talked about they had knowledge that they were writing scripture, especially we talked about Peter talking about Paul's writing. He called it scripture. Um, so, but... But yeah, they, that, that's what they were doing. They, you know, and it's the Holy Spirit superintending over that writing what the Lord wanted them to say while they were writing as you would, as we would write as such. You know, it wasn't something like again they didn't go into a trance or anything like that. They didn't have to peep into a, a thing and find out that it was you know, this word or that word. So yeah, but it is, and, and we just kind of received the text, and that's it is very biblical. And it, it, it gives room for God's divine providence. So it's not just all on man, or we have to. Have, but it also there's enough there where we could say, you know what, this is this is how the Lord preserved His word. We've always had these words from the earliest times. We've had these letters, and this is how we we have our canon. And again, like the like the Catechism said, how do we know it's the word of God? There is there's a purity, a majesty, a holiness. The consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. So you have consent. You have an unfolding of redemptive history. So it's amazing, uh, whatever, over 40 different authors, thousands of years, different places, different continents. But when you read Genesis to Revelation, it fits. It fits. You can see it from the beginning, even from that first promises in Genesis 3 to when the Lord returns back to the garden in Revelation 21. You have in between, it's the unfolding of redemptive history. It can't be, I'm getting shivers, it can't be coincidental, you know, just lucky, oh, this just fits, yeah. and here's what David said in Psalm, and here's what Christ, no, it's, you see the divine superintending of God's, of the Holy Spirit as God's story is unfolding, even as we're writing it through the centuries. That's what's so beautiful about it. So, anyway, um, let me pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you. Thank you for this group here tonight, Lord. And just pray once again that you would help us just to be grow deeper in love with you and your and your majesty and your holiness. When we think about your word, how you preserved it, how it came forth, it is true, Lord God. We see, the, the as we just mentioned, the majesty, purity, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to you how people's lives are changed, how nations are transformed when the gospel takes hold, Lord God. We see these things um, through your power and through your spirit. So we see it in our own lives and what the precious word means to us. And it's not subjective. It is objective truth. It's true change that you have made in our hearts and in our lives. And so your scripture teaches us, shows us, Lord. We learn and we grow. So we just pray that we're able to defend your word when these when these attacks from unbelievers who just want to be um, comforted in their own unbelief. And that comes about oftentimes when we can't give an answer or we're stumped or we think we have to admit that we're wrong. That gives them more credence to stay in their sin. We don't want that. We want to be able to have them think about these things that even as you will ultimately bring conviction to their hearts and lives. So I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to learn and grow in our faith 
And uh, bless, bless us this evening. Watch over us. See us safely to our homes. In Jesus' name, amen.